Diplomacy is a dangerous business. It's a dangerous business. U.S. history testifies to that. In 1965, John Gordon Mine, the U.S. ambassador to Guatemala, was gunned down in the streets by rebels. In 1979, Adolf Dubbs, who was the U.S. ambassador to Afghanistan, was killed in exchange of gunfire after uh, Islamic extremists tried to kidnap him. Uh, probably most famously today, if you've seen the movie 13 Hours, in September of 2012, J. Christopher Stevens, the U.S. ambassador to Libya, was killed in an attack in Benghazi. Diplomacy is a dangerous business. It's a, a hazardous profession. I was actually doing a little research as I was thinking about this, uh, and I discovered that uh, we think the first historically recorded, historically documented case of the death of an ambassador in the line of duty was uh, the Persian ambassador to Sparta in 481 BC. History records that King Leonidas of Sparta himself killed him. Whether or not he, you know, kicked him down a well and yelled, this is Sparta, we don't know. History doesn't record that. I don't think 300 was a documentary. Um, but the point stands. Being an ambassador can be dangerous. And yet, as we've seen as we, over the past few weeks through Matthew 10, the work of an ambassador is what Christ called his original apostles to. And it's what he calls us, his church, to today as well. Christians are called to be Jesus' ambassadors in the world. So if you've, if you've been with us, this section uh, really began with Jesus' compassion for the people. He looks at the crowds and compassion stirs up in his heart. So he sees their, their sheep without a shepherd. Uh, and so at the beginning of Matthew 10, he starts fulfilling his own prayer request uh, by sending out his 12 apostles to go among the lost sheep of Israel with this good news of the good shepherd. And, and just as in a similar way, we today bring the good news of the good shepherd to the whole world. Our mission and that of the original apostles is, is different in certain respects, but there's a, a correspondence, a, a relationship, a similarity uh, that we've seen. So uh, last week, though, Jared showed us in the passage before this one uh, that just as the work of a political ambassador can be dangerous, again, history attests to uh, diplomats who have died in the line of duty, so also for Christ's ambassadors, our work is filled with peril. Jesus sends out his apostles, but as he's sending them, he, he tells them uh, that people won't want what they're offering, that, that, that they're going to scorn and, and hate his ambassadors. And that's what we see happen in the book of Acts when the apostles are going out preaching. They're telling people about this risen Christ, and many of them are killed or at least expelled out of their hometowns. It's what happen, has happened throughout church history where Christ's church has suffered persecution and rejection at every age and in every place. And increasingly in our own time and place, we see the world is crazy. We get so discouraged. You just look at the news for, for five minutes. It's so discouraging that our world is set against Christ and his ways, increasingly hostile to his people. And so our response typically is fear. We're afraid. We, we fear. We see a world dead, dead set against Jesus and his church, and we're filled with fear and anxiety. 
Uh, and as Jared alluded to last week, uh, part of the problem is also that there are, are people kind of ranting and, and raving and, and encouraging fear, stirring it up into a frenzy. But here in our passage this morning, we see Jesus actually commands the opposite response. He corrects that reaction. Not by looking at the world and saying, it's not really that bad. You know, Jesus was no optimist about human depravity. He doesn't downplay the craziness. He, he tells his apostles, it's, it's every bit as bad as you think, probably worse. You probably aren't even ready for how bad it's going to get. But his command is not to ring the alarm bells and, and stir up fear into a frenzy. His command is have no fear. And today we're going to see why. We're going to see why uh, in, their, in their mission, the original apostles could, could go into a hostile world with this truth that they need not fear and why we too today in a crazy world opposed to Jesus and his people should have steel in our spines as we fulfill the duties of his ambassadors. So our outline this morning, uh, two points. First, we'll consider the object of our fear. That'll be most of our time. And then second, we'll look at the content of our confession. The object of our fear, the content of our confession. So first, the object of our fear. Jesus starts our passage with a very simple command. You cannot get around it. It is so straightforward. Have no fear. Have no fear. And I expect when these 12 men, these 12 original apostles heard that, uh, they either laughed or cried. Because everything Jesus just said seems to kind of merit the opposite response. Just a, a sampling from our text last week. Jesus just finished saying, you're going to be sheep among wolves. I don't know if you know much about sheep and wolves. That combination usually doesn't work well for the sheep. He says, they'll deliver you to the courts. They'll flog you. You'll be dragged, not gently led by the hand. You will be dragged before the government. He said, your family members will deliver you over to death. And he rounds off. Jared had a really fun passage to preach last week. He rounds it all off with this nice generic, you'll be hated by all. Isn't that nice? You'll be hated by all. Just in case there were any questions. I know I talked about the government and your family. In case I missed anyone, you'll be hated by all. And if I'm there with the disciples, I'm, I'm saying, sorry, Jesus. I, when you say have no fear, I, I feel like you just missed everything you just said. Because it sure seems like we should have a lot of fear. Well, actually, three times in this passage, Jesus says, don't fear. So in this, this first point, this first section, the object of our fear, we're going to see three reasons why Jesus get, which Jesus gives why we shouldn't fear. Three reasons why his original apostles in the hostile world, the hostile environment they were going into, didn't need to fear. And three reasons why we shouldn't either. Verse 26 and 27. So have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light. What you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. Reason number one why we shouldn't fear a world full of suffering, where hostility is guaranteed. Reason number one, your faith will be vindicated. Your faith, Christian, 
will be vindicated. Jesus says it twice in verse 26. Everything covered and hidden will be revealed and known. Uh, in other words, the truth will out. The truth, what, what is true? The truths that you're preaching, the truths of who I am, everything will come into the light eventually. He says it twice, which probably in one sense uh, is to communicate certainty. It's kind of a Hebrew way of speaking, uh, or Aramaic would be what Jesus was probably speaking. Um, but it, you communicate certainty by you say something twice. This is very true. Nothing hidden will, be, uh, will not come into the light eventually. But it also seems to me that in, in the context here, there are probably two things that will come into the light, two hidden and covered realities that will be exposed. And the first, on the one hand, is that the evil of their persecutors will be exposed. The evil of, of those who are hostile to them. It will one day be evident that those who handed Christians over to the government and flogged them and put them to death were in the wrong the whole time. And in fact, the, the wrong side of history is the side that scorned Christ, that, that shouted down his ambassadors, and that sought to bury the gospel in the tombs of its martyrs. That side one day will be exposed in all its ugliness, in all its evil. Nothing is covered that will not be revealed. But on the other hand, the other reality that will come into the light, not just evil will be exposed and seen for how awful it is, but the followers of Jesus will be shown to be the ones who were all along on the right side of history. It will be seen that these 12 apostles who Jesus is speaking to and that we today will, were ultimately, because we are in Christ, on the right side of history. It looked for these 12 apostles, right? They hitched their cart to the broken, weak, losing horse. Right? That's, how, that's how it looks. I mean, come on, seriously, like a... A bunch of fishermen and tax collectors in Galilee and this, this rabbi who like keeps getting, you know, saying mean things once the crowds get too big and turning people away. Like, this is, the wrong, this is the wrong horse. This is the wrong team to root for. But it will be shown that one day that the beauty and worth of Jesus, which was hidden, will one day shine in full glory and no one will be able to not to deny that that was the right side all along. That's the first reason Jesus doesn't want his followers to fear, because one day their faith will be vindicated. But the obvious question is when. Right? Like when? The, the cry of the martyrs in Revelation 5, or 7, I think, actually, how long, O oh Lord, when will that happen? Well, first, there's the sense in which the, the normal unfolding of time really does prove the truth and vindicate the faith of Christ's apostles. Just as time unfolds. So here's what I mean. I remember when I was back in college, uh, I went on a, a study abroad trip kind of around the Mediterranean, and we spent some time in Rome. That's where we finished our trip. Uh, and in Rome, I got to visit the Colosseum, which is cool because I love the movie Gladiator. I was so excited to go to the Colosseum. But in the, the years since, as I've, as I've reflected on that experience, and I've thought about the thousands upon thousands of my brothers and sisters in Christ who were tortured and killed in that arena. You know, Rome's attempt to, to shut this whole Christianity thing down 
I can't help but think it's a little bit, a little bit funny that 2,000 years later, some skinny college kid who loves Jesus was walking through there eating gelato. I mean, how did it work out for you, Rome? It sure looked at that time, for those early martyrs, it sure looked like they were on the winning side, that, that they were in the right, that they were on the right side of history. But where's the Roman Empire now? <laughs> like, like what, what happened to those persecutors? It's just a bunch of ruins that college kids walk through eating gelato. The church they tried to take down is still here, walking through their ruins. Our message will always outlast our enemies. It will always outlast our enemies. That was true for these 12 apostles. Their work lasted. And we, in a sense, are part of the fruit of that work. And the wolves who devour them are gone. There are new wolves. But the ones who went after the early apostles, they're ruins today. That's true with the simple unfolding of time. But it's also and especially true that on the last day, when Christ returns in glory, our faith will be ultimately, perfectly, fully vindicated. So the word here, when it says, uh, when it says that nothing is covered that will not be revealed, that word, you could, it's literally the word apocalypsed. It will not be apocalypse. I know apocalypse we often uh, associate with the book of Revelation, which is because the word revelation is the translation of the word apocalypse. So it's a, a revealation. That's what an apocalypse is. It's revealing something. Uh, and it points us here towards that last day when Christ returns in his glory. It reminds us that even though there is much that remains hidden, even today, even though our message is scorned and mocked in the world, one day the blistering light of Christ's return will uncover every single dark shadow. Every evil deed will be exposed, and every person of faith who, who loved Jesus, who loved his appearing, will be vindicated. The majesty of his unveiling will prove the faith of his disciples. Our message will always outlast our enemies. Because our king is coming back. So brothers and sisters, don't fear. Don't fear. Your faith will be vindicated. And instead of fearing, do what Jesus says here in verse 27. Preach it from the housetops. That's like the first century equivalent of the all caps Facebook post. You know, like yelling from the rooftops, right? Um, please don't do that. Don't do the all caps Facebook post. You can post about Jesus on Facebook. That's great. Just stay off the caps lock button. But it's true, if your faith is in Christ, you're on ultimately the right side of history. One day it will all be in the light. So live and preach today like it is in the light. Live in that reality that will one day be exposed to be the true reality that many were blind to. That's how Jesus could, could look at the crowds with compassion. Not because he saw them as this posing for it, like, like it's us versus them. Because he knew the truth. He knew they were walking in blindness, that they were lost. They were sheep without a shepherd. And they're walking away from glorious, wonderful, life-changing truth. 
That's our world too. It's, it's crazy. Of course it's crazy. Read the news. It's insane out there. Of course it's, don't be surprised by that. It's, it's crazy because it's lost. Because they're blind. The world needs the good news of Christ, the good shepherd, who, who laid down his life for his sheep. That message is in the dark, so share it in the light. And don't fear. Your faith will be vindicated. Look at verse 28. And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. Reason number two not to fear. The worst the world can do is kill you. The worst the world can do is kill you. All the things we talked about last week, you know, Jared walked through that really fun list of, of all the things Jesus said will happen to his 12 apostles or it's very much like what we can expect in the world today. All those horrible things are real and, and serious. You may be hated, you may be handed over to death, but that's it. That's the end. That's, that's the worst they can do. The, the fear of death is a, a rational fear. I don't mean to be cavalier or, or dismissive about it. But there are far worse things to fear. There are far worse things to fear and far greater joys to seek. I shared this quote with you a few weeks ago. It never gets old for me. You'll probably hear it a lot. It's from John Patton, who was a missionary going to bring the gospel to cannibals in the South Pacific. And he uh, was opposed in his own home church in Scotland. Uh, Mr. Dixon came up to him and said, the cannibals, you'll be eaten by cannibals. Right? He's telling him that, the world's crazy. Don't go out there. It's, it's awful. They, they will hate you. you. You should be afraid. And Patton replied, Mr. Dixon, you are advanced in years now and your own prospect is soon to be laid in the grave there to be eaten by worms. I confess to you that if I can live and die serving and honoring the Lord Jesus it will make no difference to me whether I'm eaten by cannibals or by worms. And in the great day, my resurrection body will rise as fair as yours in the likeness of our Redeemer. See, death is certain, right? Death and taxes, right? It's that season, right? Death is certain. It's coming for everyone. And so the worst thing the world can do is just shorten the timing a little bit. The worst thing is it's something that's going to happen to you anyway. One day, you will die. Your body will decay. You will get sick. Something will happen, and you will go into the grave. And that is where the world's power over you is gone. But Patton's quote here also points us to the, the truer, the more glorious reality of what Jesus is saying here, that there is one, there is one, who can destroy both body and soul in hell. There is one who holds the keys of both salvation and damnation. It's not the world. It's not Satan. It's the holy and living God. There's a fate far worse than death. As Hebrews says, it is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. For a, a, a sinner to, to come before pure holiness, there can only be wrath. It's far worse than anything the world can do. But three times in this passage, Jesus says, don't fear. 
And one time he commands the opposite and he says, fear. The problem then is not that we have fear. The problem is that our fear is misplaced. We're looking at the wrong thing. If we, if we fear the world, if we're, if we're fixating on how unhinged it is out there, or how, how they're, they're coming for churches and Christians, or, or whatever, whatever your fear is, if that's your fixation, your fear is misplaced. The world and our culture can do a lot of horrible things. It's not a safe place to live. I'm not, I'm not going to tell you to be a fool. Jesus says, be wise as serpents, innocent as doves. But I want you to open your eyes to the bigger truth. The world does not hold ultimate power over your soul. God alone holds those keys in his hands. I should imagine you were, were walking in the woods somewhere and uh, you come across uh, like a bobcat. All right, and let's, you're a bad Texan, so you're unarmed. I know this is hard to imagine for most of you. But, you know, it's kind of scary, right? It's, it's not like a, it's not a tame feline, right? It's, it's you're not something you hope to run into when you're walking in the woods unarmed, right? Uh, it's a little bit scary. It's a dangerous cat. But then you turn around and you see a lion. I don't know where these woods are but bear with me, bobcats and lions. Which one are you going to turn your back on and which one are you going to face? Which one will hold your fear? If you're not thinking lion, you need to watch some nature documentaries, okay? Some raw power. In the same way, when you see who your God is, your eyes will be fixed on him and the world and its dangers, legitimate though they are. I'm not saying the world's not crazy. But they will see, it will seem so puny and pitiful in comparison. Why? Because the wrath of God is far worse than the rejection of men. And the embrace of God is far sweeter than the approval of men. Christians should be the most frustrating people on the planet to persecute. It should be extremely frustrating for our persecutors to to get us, right? Uh, In in the book of Acts, you see this. Jewish leaders try to do that, and the believers are like, man, this is great. We get to suffer for Jesus. Man, we're so, Jesus thinks we're worthy to suffer for him. How awesome is this? Or Paul, when he gets locked up in prison, he's like, the gospel is not bound, and I'm about to convert these guards right here. Or in the Old Testament, I think of, uh, in the book of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right? They, King Nebuchadnezzar makes this big golden image, says, you're going to worship it, uh, or I'm going to throw you into the fire. And they're like, yeah, we're not going to do that. Sorry. Uh, our God can save us, but even if he doesn't, we're not going to worship the image you want us to worship. We're just not going to do it. We're not going to bow. Or, or think of Martin Luther when he was standing trial for, for rejecting indulgences and in the, the teachings of the Catholic Church. He said, my conscience is held captive to the word of God. I cannot and will not recant anything. For to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. God help me, here I stand. I cannot do otherwise. Amen. How frustrating to persecute someone like that. 
How, how in the world is it possible, though? How in the world could, could Paul or Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego or, or uh, the early Christians in the book of Acts, how could they face the world's rejection with such confidence and such joy? I'll tell you how. They saw the lion. They saw the lion. They, they feared God. The world may be off the rails and meriting a certain kind of fear, but when you see who your God is, it, it just doesn't compare. The world has power, but that power has an expiration date. One day when you do die, if your faith is in Christ, your eyes will shut in death and open in resurrection life, and you will see your God. Which brings us to the third reason not to fear. Verses 29 and 31. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. Reason number three. Your father reigns. Your father reigns. Uh, Jesus here, he's, he's making his point to these 12 apostles as he's sending them out on this mission. And he uses his favorite illustration, or one of his favorites. I say favorite because he's used it already in the book of Matthew. And uh, I think chapter 6, these, these sparrows. He talks about these sparrows that to us are pretty worthless. Uh, he, said, he says two of them cost a, a single penny. Two for one Penny. So a penny uh, is this crazy small amount of money in those days. It was, uh, the, it was one sixteenth of one day's wage. And a sparrow was half of that. So it's a pretty worthless creature, right? You know, like it, 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 is it uh, you know, compares to the finances of the world. I was trying to think of a modern analogy. There's nothing that cheap today. Uh, you can't get a gumball for that cheap. Um, But no disrespect to sparrows, Jesus is saying the birds are pretty worthless. And yet not a single one of them falls to the ground apart from God. Not a single one. It's a shocking statement. Jesus is saying, for that to be true, Jesus is saying every single flap of these worthless sparrows' wings is superintended by the king of the cosmos. The wings don't start flapping apart from God's providence. They don't stop flapping apart from it. In a similar way, Jesus says next that God numbers every tiny little hair on your head, the smallest details about you. God knows them and he holds them all. You probably don't know how many hairs on your head, unless there's not too many. But God does. So what Jesus is is illustrating here is what Uh, Theologians will often refer to as uh, meticulous providence. Meticulous providence. So uh, this is a a doctrine, uh, basically, that uh, that God is not just the kind of king who uh, is in control of the big things, but he is the kind of king who is in control of absolutely everything. That that every, every flap of a little sparrow's wings, every hair on your head, all of it comes from the purposeful sovereignty, the meticulous providence of God. That God is in absolute control of absolutely everything. 
We see that in Job 37, his rule over nature. Look at this. It says, God thunders wondrously with his voice. He does great things we cannot comprehend. For to the snow, he says, fall on the earth. Likewise to the downpour. By the breath of God, ice is given and the broad waters are frozen fast. He loads the thick cloud with moisture. Get that. Every drop of moisture, God puts it in the cloud. The clouds scatter his lightning. It's his lightning. He's the king. They turn around and around by his guidance to accomplish all that he commands them on the face of the habitable world. Whether for correction or for his land or for love, he causes it to happen. He rules over nature. He also rules over evil. We see, we've already seen that in Matthew's uh, gospel. Uh, Jesus meets a demon and they need to beg him to take a single step. They can't do anything without his express permission. We see his power over humanity. Proverbs 16, the heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. You can make plans. Steps don't happen unless the Lord establishes them. I've said this before, I'll, I'll probably say it again. When God says jump, every atom in the universe says how high. That's meticulous providence. Every little detail comes from the hand of God. He reigns over everything. But that's not even the biggest news in this passage, Christian. That's a glorious, wonderful truth that you need to cling to, but it's not the main point Jesus is making here. The big news is that that God, that king of the cosmos who holds the lightning in his hand, who knows every hair on your head, who is sovereign, superintending every flap of a sparrow's wing, who commands everything, that God, Christian, is your dad. He's your dad. Look at verse 29. Jesus says, not one of these sparrows will fall to the ground apart from your father. Your father. Not the sparrow's father. God's their creator. He cares for them. He's not their father. Circle that word, your. Underline it. Whatever you can do, don't miss it. This is the one who holds the power of eternal joy and eternal damnation, and he's your dad. The lion is on your side, Christian. See how silly it is to ring the alarm bells of fear? Like, like how's like. Oh no, a bobcat. I've got a lion on my side. He cares for the sparrows, but you're not some worthless sparrow sold for half a penny. You're a son or a daughter. That's who you are, Christian. He's not just your creator. He is your father. I've, I've uh, shared before how much I love my dog. Uh, his name is Kodiak. He's an Alaskan Malamute. He's very, very dumb. He's almost drowned himself on multiple occasions. He can't remember that he doesn't know how to swim. I love him very much. Uh, and we got him before we had kids. Uh, so his early years, I mean, man, the, the dog was living in luxury, right? I mean, this is, this is a, every canine's dream. A daily walks, belly rubs, all the attention he could ever want. But then we had kids. And the canine amenities in our household dipped considerably. We still love him. We, he gets fed. We take care of him. I still tell my whole church how much I love him. But it's nothing compared to a child. 
Not because I, I, don't, I love my dog less, but because I love my kids infinitely more. It's good to be a bird that God cares for, but to be his child is infinitely better. He numbers the hairs on your head because he loves you. Verse 31, fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. See, to a Christian, the fear of God should be an immeasurably comforting truth. To fear God should be comforting because there's an infinite difference between fearing something evil and twisted and fearing someone who is good and your father. Christ spoke these words here too, knowing that he and the Father had covenanted in eternity, that he would pay the price for your adoption, that that he has set an infinite value on you because of his own joy to do it. Your Father reigns, Christian, so don't fear. A few years ago, I uh, met a man he was speaking at a conference uh, that I was at, and he was a, a seminary president, president in India. Uh, it's not very well known, but actually uh, the, the Hindu majority in India can be very hostile towards Christianity. Mostly uh, Islam in that part of the world gets, the, the, gets known for being hostile towards Christians. Hinduism can be just as, uh, just as difficult. And this man, as the, the president of a, a Christian seminary, uh, was a public figure, a public face of Christianity, and... He was a native-born Indian who was from that land, so he was viewed by his Hindu neighbors and, and uh, friends. I guess I'm not sure whether they're friends or not. But he was viewed as a, a sellout, as a traitor, as, as a Westerner uh, who just happened to be born there. And he told me about the first time there was an assassination attempt on his life. How in the months after... He would wake up in a cold sweat, in fear, just trembling, you know, jumping at every little sound that he could hear, full of fear. And then he said he realized something. He said he realized Christians are immortal until God decides our time is done. Because God is sovereign. God is in control. He reigns. Nothing happens apart from him, and he's my father, and I will trust him with his timing. And then he said, and nine more assassination attempts later, I'm still here, so God must still have work for me to do. Al Mohler, another seminary president out in Louisville, Kentucky, has a podcast called The Briefing, where he talks about news and current events from a Christian perspective. And someone wrote in a question to him, Asking a question we probably all feel in our world today. How do you read the news without getting discouraged? I think about this all the time. How do I, so I read the news pretty much every day and it's so discouraging. Al Mohler, your job, part of what you do for this podcast is you read a lot of news. How do you do that without getting discouraged? And Mohler's response was simple. He just said, because Jesus Christ is Lord. I can read anything happening in the world and I don't have to freak out because I know who's on the throne. Jesus Christ is Lord. I need not fear. So when you know, brothers and sisters, when you know to the marrow of your bones that your faith will be vindicated, that the, the worst the world can do is kill you and that your father reigns, you won't fear. 
when you know those things and you fill your eyes with your God, you won't fear. But Jesus isn't done yet. He finishes our passage here by telling us the, the, how that, that confidence, that lack of fear, should play out for his followers. This brings us to our, our second point, the content of our confession. So look at verses 32 and 33. He says, So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. So just as one day all that is covered will be revealed, as Jesus began our passage with, everything hidden will be made known, so also our hearts will be exposed by the content of our confession, whether we acknowledge or deny Jesus. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So Jesus is is giving us here both a staggering promise and a terrifying warning. A staggering promise and a terrifying warning. Let's look at the promise first. Verse 32 again, everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. Everyone who acknowledges me. Everyone. Now there's something very clear about this. Acknowledge him and he'll acknowledge you. It's very simple in a way. It's almost mathematical. The word acknowledge here actually though I think is a little weak. It's, you could, it seems to me like a, a deadbeat dad could acknowledge his kids. It's not really what Jesus is saying here. The, the word in Greek is the same word used throughout the Bible for confession of sin. Who confesses. So there's a, an ownership, and an identification with it's not, it's not like Jesus, you're just saying, yeah, I know Jesus, and Jesus is like, yeah, I know this sinner. We, we know each other. It's not this grudging acknowledgement. There's a sense of identification, of, of ownership of Jesus, of us confessing, yes, this is my Jesus, and Jesus saying, yes, this is my sinner. He or she is mine. A full acknowledgement. When I was in uh, college, I remember one day, it was the beginning, it was sophomore year. Uh, it was the beginning of the semester, uh, first day of the semester, and everyone had a new schedule. I went to a, a small Christian college. And the awkward part uh, is all, was always, you know, who am I going to eat lunch with? New schedule. I don't know who's going to be in the cafeteria when I go there. So uh, there's this anxiety you're feeling in your last class before lunch. Like, who am I going to find to sit with? Um, my, my friends may be there. I don't know. I, we haven't compared schedules. We'll, we'll see. Uh, and uh, I, had, I had one friend in my class before lunch. His name was Matt. So I, I zeroed in on him after class to, to make sure we could sit together and eat so I wouldn't be, you know, eating alone. How embarrassing, right? Uh, and so I zeroed in on Matt, and, and Matt was on the soccer team. And he told me, yeah, well, you're welcome to join me. I'm going to be eating with the soccer guys. We talked about it. We've got a table set up. Uh, but you're welcome to join us. And I was like, okay, cool, great. Uh, but internally, I was kind of like... You know, I don't really know many of the soccer guys. Uh, I have like one other friend on the soccer team. Uh, it could be a little awkward, uh, but it's better than eating alone. So we'll go for it. Uh, we go to the cafeteria. We put our backpacks down at the table. No one else is, is at the table yet. Uh, and we go get our food. Uh, but I made the mistake, rookie mistake, of getting my food faster than Matt. So I'm coming back to the table with my food ready to sit down. And I see Matt is not there and four uh, four soccer players, none of whom I knew, and all of whom 
were upperclassmen were already sitting there. And I was like, wow, this is, this is so awkward and stressful here. So I'm just kind of, you know, meandering around the cafeteria, stalling for time, waiting for Matt to get his, you know, fruit bowl or whatever he's doing. Like, come on, man, I'm dying here. Uh, and eventually the awkwardness of me not wanting to introduce myself overcame, was overcome by the awkwardness of me meandering around the cafeteria pretending to be going in the right direction. So I went to the table and uh, introduced myself. Uh, and what I didn't realize was I was wearing a shirt that I got from another friend of mine, my one other friend on the soccer team. Uh, they would, they, his name was Russo. They would, they would sell these jerseys, these shirts, uh, which is like a fundraiser thing. And whoever you bought the shirt from uh, would have who, the person you bought it from's uh, name and jersey number on the shirt. And so before I even finished introducing myself and kind of stumbling through this awkward introduction, one of these uh, upperclassmen soccer players said, oh, you're a friend of Russo's, have a seat. You know, welcome. Like, it was warm, inviting, like opposite of what I was expecting, uh, like wonderful, just like, yeah, have a seat. I was accepted because someone they knew, someone they trusted, their name was on my chest. Brothers and sisters, if you acknowledge Jesus, if you wear his name on your life, he will take ownership of you before the Father who will be glad to accept you. If his name is on your life, if, it, if his name is the banner over your life, the name of the one who the Father has known for all eternity, the name of the one whom, in whom the Father finds his perfect and highest delight, the name of the one who is the perfectly faithful son for all time, the name of the second person of the Trinity, Jesus, will go to bat for you before the Father. He will acknowledge you before God the Father. Is there anyone in the world you would rather have going to bat for you before the God of the universe other than the God of the universe? If that's the case, if that's what he is saying here, it doesn't matter what kind of baggage you're, you're worried about bringing before God. It doesn't matter what, what sins you're ashamed of, what unworthiness you feel. You don't belong, but Jesus will make sure you do. He does that right now, Christian, right now. Romans 8.34, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. There are only three scars in heaven. For all eternity, there will be only three scars, the three scars that nailed Jesus to the cross, and it is those wounds that he is constantly showing the Father, proving the price has been paid. It is those wounds that he now is showing to intercede for us, so that, 1 John chapter 2, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And if that's true, 1 Corinthians 3, you are Christ's, and Christ is God. It's a staggering promise, Christian. You have an in, an advocate, one who is interceding for you, who is exactly the one you need. If you confess him, if you acknowledge him, he will gladly take ownership and say, that sinner is mine. That good news must be said against the warning Jesus ends with. 
Verse 33. Whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. So Romans 10 says that the essence of salvation is confessing with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believing your heart God raised him from the dead. So it, it stands to reason that the opposite of that, denying Christ, disavowing him, if we, if we let our fear keep us silent or to deny him, we should not be surprised. He will deny us. Let's be clear, though, about a couple of things here. First, Jesus' warning is an act of grace. His warning is an act of grace. It is kind, abundantly, infinitely kind of Jesus to be clear about matters pertaining to eternity. If he, if he danced around the issue, if he, if he left it vague, we could be in the dark or confused about something that matters, an eternal reality. So let no one here say they were not warned. His warning is a grace. But second, also realize that to deny Jesus is not an unchangeable position. It's not an unchangeable position. Peter, think of Peter, famously, denied Jesus three times at his trial. Three times. And yet Jesus came to him after he rose and restored him and made him a leader in the church. So denying Jesus once, even three times, does not mean it is over forever. He meets us with grace when we confess our failure. We've all denied him at some point in our lives, in some ways. But those sins do not have to be the end of the story. Which brings us to the third and most important thing we need to see here, that we need to, we need to know what the content of this confession is. What exactly is it that we must not deny? Well, the better question is who? Who is being denied? It's Jesus himself. Just as we said, acknowledging, confessing Christ uh, is, is t- conveys a sense of identification and, and ownership. It's not merely some vague ideas or some, some loose doctrines about Christ that are being denied, but Christ himself, the essence of who he is and what he has come to do. That is the, that is the ultimate confession or denial Brothers and sisters, there are a million things you can have an opinion about. Many of them are very, very important. Some of them pertain to the essence of our faith, the the doctrines of of Christ's penal substitutionary death, that he died to take our punishment on the cross, the doctrines of Christ's deity, of of who he is. There are are many things that we must hold to no matter what, that, that denying that is to deny Christ. But there are so many other things that matter far less, that you're free to have an opinion on, but ultimately you will not stand before the Father and answer for that. You could take a position on millions of things, politics, COVID, whatever. This is the peak of the mountain. You cannot afford to be wrong about this. All of eternity hangs on where you stand in relation to Jesus. Is his name the banner over your life? Or is it not? Brothers and sisters, there's much, much to fear in this world. 
You may know the pain of rejection, of betrayal, of of death for Christ. Turn your eyes daily from your fears to your God. Make his rejection your greatest dread and his embrace, his approval, your greatest desire. And know this, that you don't have to work your way up to that approval. He's not standing with his arms crossed, just impatiently waiting for you to get your life together, figure this whole thing out. No, Jesus, the one here who speaks the words, do not fear, has already done the work. You must simply confess him. So treasure his approval more than that of men and love them as Jesus loves them by bearing witness as his ambassador, whatever the cost. Let's pray. Our Lord Jesus, there was a day when you stood before 12 men speaking these words, have no fear. And we pray now that their truths would change our hearts today. You'd fix our eyes on all you have done and all that you are so that the world can get as crazy as it wants. It can hate us as much as it wants and yet we will gladly, boldly, joyfully, confidently preach this Messiah who has come and made us his. We pray for faithfulness in that task. In Christ's name, amen.